Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Chaloka Bayani. I'm senior lecturer in international law uh, in the law department. I'm also a member of the uh, Center for the Study of Human Rights and serve as the chair of the advisory board for the center. And I just began my mandate as UN uh, Special Rapporteur on the human rights of internally displaced persons. But nothing I say or do here reflects the views of the UN um, or of internally displaced persons for that matter. Okay, but I'm delighted to be able to uh, welcome you this evening to the public panel discussion hosted by the Centre this evening on the subject of Cambodia, reflections of the Khmer Rouge. I should point out that the discussion is actually a series of events held to coincide with the exhibition uh, organized by the Centre in the Atrium Gallery at LSC from the 1st of November to the 10th of uh, December this year. This portrayed life under the Khmer Rouge uh, in Cambodia and also displayed information about ongoing trials of former Khmer Rouge leaders at the extraordinary chambers uh, in the courts of Cambodia. Against that background, the discussion <coughs> is held in the context of the LSC's commitment uh, to holding public ac academic debate by virtue of academic freedom and freedom of expression. So we expect our speakers to speak uh, without being disrupted, without being heckled. Those that have points to make can make the points subsequently when there will be a question and answer session. We also expect that an audio recording of the proceedings will be available sometime next week at technology permitting so that people who want to follow that um, can read for themselves. It now remains for me to introduce our excellent and impressive panel speakers this evening. Our first speaker is Brian Adams, who is Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, Asia Division since 2002, and he's a general expert um, on Asia. The division he oversees covers human rights issues in 20 countries from Afghanistan to the Pacific. And prior to his engagement with Human Rights Watch, Mr. Adams worked in, the Cambodia, in Cambodia for five years as the senior lawyer for the Cambodia Field Office of the United Nations High Commissioner uh, for Human Rights. He also served as legal advisor to the Cambodian Parliament, a human rights committee. He has conducted human rights investigations, uh, initiated the UN first in-country judicial mentor program, and drafted and revised legislation such as the press law, political party law, NG law, uh, and others. Our second speaker is Margot Pekin, who has worked in the field of human rights for much of her professional career. Uh, and I should know because she mentored me in my early days. Um, most recently, she worked for the United Nations as Director of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Cambodia from 2001 to 2007. But she no longer works for the UN, so she's free to speak uh, as she wishes without having to enter in disclaimers, um, <laughs> as I did. She was responsible for the Human Rights Program of the Ford Foundation from 1988 to 1995 as she established and directed the Office of Amnesty International at the United Nations in New York from 1976 to 1987. And she's the author of several articles on human rights and has served on the boards of a number of non-government organizations. She's also a member of the advisory board for the Center for the Study of Human Rights and one of its founding souls. Simon Taylor is one of the three co-founder directors of Global Witness, a London and Washington-based um, civil society organization which investigates and campaigns to prevent natural resource-related conflict and corruption and associated environmental and human rights abuses. And I actually saw Global Witness at first hand 
uh, at work in The Hague about three weeks ago uh, when there was a conference on pillage, that is looting, um, plunder during armed conflicts, and they were pretty effective at what they did. In addition to continuing to co-head Global Witness, Simon has focused on investigating and analyzing threats to global energy supplies, in particular for oil, over the past two years. This work resulted in the October 2009 report, Heads in the Sand, and forms the starting basis of Global Witness's climate and energy campaign, uh, in which they're very uh, effectively engaged. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is our panel, and I hope you give them a very warm welcome uh, this evening and listen very attentively to uh, what they have to say. Each of the speakers will speak for about 15 minutes, after which there will be time to ask questions, make brief comments, and I emphasize brief comments, not speeches. If there are speeches, I may take the liberty uh, of interrupting you. So, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Okay, um, there will also be a drinks reception after the event. There will be details of that. Um, but that's an incentive to stay um, and remain here until the event is actually over so that you can have a drink at the end of the day. Okay, may I now call Brad Adams uh, to speak? Thank you. Um, well, thank you all for coming. It's always nice to see people still interested in Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia was at one time the Iraq or the Afghanistan of uh, international relations and geopolitics back in the day, 20 years ago, when it was at the center of uh, problems between the Chinese, the Soviet Union, the Americans, the British, ASEAN, and they couldn't get along with each other because they couldn't figure out uh, how to solve the Cambodia problem. And uh, many people think the Cambodian problem has been solved because it's no longer the center of geopolitical quarrels. But for Cambodians, the Cambodia problem has not uh, been solved at all. Um, and the subject we're talking about today, by the way, is this on? I don't, I don't hear the uh, echo. Okay. Uh, the subject we're talking about today is impunity. And in many ways, that's the story of Cambodia uh, over the last 20 years. One can uh, describe other narratives for Cambodia as well, you know, free market uh, activities now coming out of isolation and of sanctions. But I think from a human perspective, from the perspective of, of average poor Cambodians, uh, impunity is one of the things that has the greatest impact on their lives still. Um, from uh, working on a farm in a remote part of the country to trying to be a trader in a big city like Phnom Penh, uh, to trying to start a business, to go, going to university, uh, because Impunity affects almost every aspect of people's lives, whether it's having to pay a bribe to get into university, uh, having to pay a bribe at, at, a, a, at a marketplace to sell their goods, um, or when something happens to someone in someone's family, uh, not being able to obtain justice, not having a remedy for uh, things that happen. Uh, just to sort of frame the discussion, uh, I'll just read you one definition of impunity you to think about. Uh, and this comes from a former UN special, special rapporteur on the independence of judges and lawyers. And it says, the impunity is the impossibility, de jure or de facto, of bringing perpetrators of human rights violations to account, whether in criminal, civil, administrative, or disciplinary proceedings, since they are not subject to any inquiry that might lead to their being accused, arrested, tried, and if found guilty, sentenced to appropriate penalties, and to making reparations to their victims. Um, so in short, impunity is the failure of the state to hold people 
who break the law accountable and to provide a remedy for victims. In Cambodia, impunity goes back, well, forever. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you are here because you've been to Cambodia, and if you've been to Cambodia, you've probably been to Angkor Wat, and if you've been to Angkor Wat, you've seen the bas-reliefs of extreme violence, uh, where Angkor Wat was built on the back of slave labor, uh, people who were uh, undoubtedly not compensated for their work, uh, and built this great monument, this temple that people come from around the world to see two million people last year went to Angkor Wat. And I think very few people actually consider the circumstances of the people who actually built Angkor Wat and the surrounding temples. And in the history that we know of Cambodia, we don't really seem to know of periods where there wasn't a problem of impunity, of powerful people taking advantage of less powerful people. Um, that's not to say this is a cultural thing, because I don't, I don't buy that, I don't accept that argument. But it is a country where uh, power has almost uh, continuously been ex exerted from top down. Uh, and there's never been a, a successful revolution in Cambodia to change that, uh, in spite of the fact that some have, have tried or some have said that that's what they were doing. Since independence, um, Cambodia has been governed uh, by Prince Sihanouk, who operated very brutal police force, secret police, had many of his real and imagined enemies dealt with violently. Uh, he was overthrown in a coup in 1970 and replaced by Lon Nol, uh, a military uh, a general, and a military government, effectively a military government, ran the country for the next five years, uh, engaged in extreme violence against uh, their enemies, including not least ethnic Vietnamese in Cambodia. Um, and they were replaced by the Khmer Rouge. And I think you know, without the Khmer Rouge, very few people would be following Cambodia anymore. And I, I'm, I'm going to I'm not talk about the Khmer Rouge Tribunal now. I'll leave it to Margot to talk about and, uh, and to <laughs> save, save some space for uh, questions later. But the Khmer Rouge period, obviously, is another period where there was complete impunity. So if uh, anyone in Sihanouk's regime, anyone in Lon Nol's regime, committed a, a violent act against uh, citizens in Cambodia, they were almost never held accountable. In fact, I don't know of cases. There may be people here who know of one or two cases. The interesting thing about the Khmer Rouge discussion um, uh, that I'll say now is that from 1979 <coughs> until 1997, there was essentially no international discussion about holding the Khmer Rouge accountable. Uh, this is because of geopolitics, as I described before, the Cold War. The uh, Vietnamese staged a show trial of what they called the Pol Pot Ing Suri clique uh, in 1979, but it didn't meet any standards of justice due process. Uh, the defense lawyers asked for the death penalty for their clients. The clients, of course, weren't present. Um, it did put some information into the public domain that wasn't there before, but it wasn't a justice process. And then we, can't, and then we had the 1980s, uh, where the Vietnamese occupied Cambodia, uh, installed former Khmer Rouge and uh, Communist Party cadre into the government to run the government. The Khmer Rouge faction ended up winning by the middle of the decade um, and really still run the country. Hun Sen's former Khmer Rouge, Thea Ban, the defense minister's former Khmer Rouge, Sarkang was with the Khmer Rouge, Chia Sim, who, uh, a very powerful person in Cambodia, was with the Khmer Rouge, Heng Samrin was with the Khmer Rouge. Um, and uh, no surprise, there wasn't much interest uh, in Cambodia in the 1980s to hold uh, people in authority accountable 
for the human rights abuses that were perpetrated. And the 1980s were a very dark period for Cambodia. I mean, people who had been subjected to genocide were then subjected to occupation and dictatorship. And uh, people in the state could do what they wanted. So uh, when the Paris peace agreements were negotiated um, and the UN came with what was then the biggest peacekeeping mission in its history called UNTAC, the people who arrived and uh, tried to exercise their responsibilities for the UN found, for example, people in prisons, one of which was in the central Phnom Penh called T3, where people were held in dark cells, not seeing the light of day for days, weeks, and months on end. There were some people who were in shackles inside their prison cells, literally wasting away uh, uh, because they were not getting attention, were not getting exercise. Uh, and, uh, and political violence at a high and low level was common, and there was uh, absolutely no remedy because it was a one-party state, and the security forces were completely under the control of the leadership of the, of the, of the party, which then came to be known as the Cambodian People's Party. So at this point, I just want to say, are you depressed yet? <laughs> because I'm not going to let up. Uh, the story doesn't get much brighter. The UN came in with its, uh, the biggest peacekeeping mission in history at that point uh, to try to stage what were called free and fair elections, to create a neutral political environment to hold those elections, um, and to control the administration of the state of Cambodia. Uh, in the course of, and we have some people here who work with UNTAC, in the course of their duties, they uncovered um, what I think could be fairly described as an organized criminal uh, plan to silence the opposition, to make it impossible for the opposition to operate, uh, or to make it as difficult as possible for the opposition to operate, um, so that the ruling party could re remain in power. And uh, uh, it took UNTAC a very long time, because they didn't have very many Khmer speakers, to fully appreciate what was going on. So UNTAC was there from early 1992 until late 1993, and it was really only in early 1993 that the higher-ups in UNTAC seemed to appreciate what was going on. Uh, some of the Khmer-speaking staff understood from the beginning, but it, it takes a while for, for uh, these things to germinate. What they discovered were uh, uh, these, these groups called A-teams that were created by um, the state of Cambodia, by uh, uh, people at the very top, Chia Sim, Hun Sen, Sin Song, I don't know if these names mean anything to you, but I will uh, shout them out for those who know Cambodia well, who were uh, Sin Sen, who were running the security apparatus in Cambodia. And these, these teams, the A-teams and the reaction forces, were created to disrupt opposition political party activities. And in the course of their duties, they killed uh, uh, many, many people, uh, threatened many, many more, and had a, a, a serious impact on the political environment during that period. And they did this with uh, as many as 20,000 UN staff on the ground uh, when the UN was fully staffed. So just imagine what it's like now, when the UN has essentially pulled out and has a skeletal human rights staff, to fight the same, essentially the same people. Um, let me just uh, tell you about one interview I had, because uh, I, I've been researching a book, I'm writing the book right now, and uh, one person who was on the inside of these death squads described how a group called A3 was created. Uh, and A3 was created uh, and set up by the uh, Ministry of National Security, led by Sin Song and Sin Sen. Their senior staff came from the, the, the Office of National Security from the 1980s. 
that was set up by the Vietnamese and by former Khmer Rouge. It was intended to be a secret organization. As this person describes it, its duty was to kill secretly and leave no evidence. In each district, a force of at least 200 members was recruited for A3 from the population, which was trusted. Why did these people take these jobs? Well, the salary was low, but if they didn't take the jobs as members of A-teams, they might be sent to fight the resistance, in other words, the Khmer Rouge, along the border or forced into the army. Um, and, and I do want to emphasize that uh, many of the people who are involved in security forces and do their dirty work um, I think are deserving of some level of sympathy because uh, they, they often get put into these positions where I'd like to think that I wouldn't do it and we all probably like to think we wouldn't do what they do but uh, they often don't have a lot of choices in life no education they're very poor uh, they have no future they may have no land um, and so suddenly they find themselves in a unit and they're told to do certain things and much like you know a mafia their loyalty is quickly tested and so they end up taking these kinds of dirty jobs um, and that's that's basically they're basically cannon fodder for the leadership um, Untac left, uh, and uh, uh, bef before Untac left, they created what something called a special prosecutor's office because the human rights situation got so bad, um, and impunity was so complete, in spite of the UN making regular representations and public statements. Um, and they tried to prosecute a few people, but there was essentially no cooperation from the uh, CPP, Hun Sen's party. Um, and uh, a number of people that they arrested were eventually uh, let go. By the time UNTAC left, uh, you know, after it mattered, the human rights component of UNTAC was able to publish a report. Uh, and they listed the killings in a, in a table uh, uh, and other human rights abuses. This table says that the killings of political opponents, killings attributed to the state of Cambodia, which is the ruling party, 46. Killings attributed to the Khmer Rouge, 37. Now that's interesting because the Khmer Rouge were still very active and according to the UN, during the period of the UN peacekeeping mission, there were more political killings by the government than by the Khmer Rouge, political killings. Now killings attributed to the Khmer Rouge motivated by, for ethnic reasons, there were 104. There were seven others that were unattributed. Probably none were committed by the government. That wasn't, that wasn't their approach to the ethnic Vietnamese problem. Killings, the primary purpose of which is, the, is to intimidate the civilian population and other, sum, other summary executions, uh, 40 attributed to the state of Cambodia. Now, uh, those of us who have done investigations in Cambodia know that it's very hard to attribute killings to the point where you're willing to put it in an official document. So this uh, certainly underestimates the number of killings uh, during this period. Um, <coughs> Uh, when the UN left, <coughs> they were uh, they were leaving a country with uh, with the uh, ruling party, which had just lost an election, having forced their way into a coalition government with Funsenpec, a royalist party. Funsenpec had uh, never shown any interest in human rights uh, when they were at the border, and they would show little or no interest in human rights when they were in power. And so uh, after the new government was formed, we had a series of political killings of journalists, uh, of threats to uh, outspoken parliamentarians and other people who were trying to change Cambodia. And 
You know, one thing that was most dispiriting is that many people dropped out of politics very quickly in, uh, in this period. The hopes have been very high during UNTAC. The UN was going to usher in a new era. Um, it did preside over uh, a, a pretty decent election, at least on voting day. There was very little, there was very little or no violence. But they didn't have any impact on the political culture. And quickly, the people in power uh, resumed their normal operating procedures. One uh, journalist who I got to know was named Tun Bun Lee. He was the editor of an opposition newspaper. He, he was arrested at one point. Uh, he was put on trial for criticizing the prime ministers. Uh, Prince Ronerud at one point made a very famous statement that he and Hun Sen had become so close that they kissed each other three times a day. So he wrote a satirical article about them kissing each other three times a day. They had been mortal enemies before this. He was put on trial, and I remember you know, he made this, he was a very funny guy, and he made this uh, very brash presentation of the judge. And at one point he said to the judge, Judge, what are you trying to say? Is my job as an editor to, to hold the balls of the prime minister every day and massage them? <laughs> Which, of course, elicited a chuckle from everybody in the crowd, but got him a one-year jail sentence. He came out, and uh, he was being threatened regularly. Uh, and one Saturday morning in 1995, uh, he was shot and killed on a side street in Phnom Penh. Uh, within half an hour, his body had been brought to Wat Lanka, which is one of the main Wats in Phnom Penh, and laid out. I went there. And uh, I'm sorry, this is a little bit gruesome, but I'm going to tell the story anyway, because it, it, I think, illustrates the reality of power in Cambodia. He had been shot twice. I was standing there uh, talking to one of his relatives. I don't remember who. I think it was a brother or an uncle. Two men uh, in a police uniform drove up on a motorcycle, got off. One man, uh, they, were both, they were both armed, of course. One man put a pistol by his side, held it by his side, stared at all of us who were there, about half a dozen of us. The other person put some gloves on, reached into both wounds, extracted the bullets, and left. Uh, this was broad daylight, uh, in the middle of the city, Watlanka's in the center of Phnom Penh. My take on it was that somebody had told him to go back and get the evidence. Uh, here I was, a UN human rights officer, standing there doing nothing. Uh, I was so shocked, as everyone else was, to be watching this that we, we didn't know what to do. But I, also, I did know that this other person had a gun, and I assumed that these were the people who had just shot and killed this guy. I have no proof to, of that. But um, that is, I think, the most uh, classic example of impunity in Cambodia that I've ever experienced. They had no fear. They're, they were afraid of nothing. Uh, and they, and they, they did this in front of a relative and in front of other people. Um, I'll quickly go through a couple other, uh, what I think are key events uh, that are worth discussing because of the profound impact they had in Cambodia. Um, on March 30th, 1997, uh, the Khmer Nation Party, as it was then called, was staging a rally outside of the parliament. They were staging a rally against corruption in the judiciary. Uh, it was a Sunday morning. There have been so many other rallies recently by the opposition that we at the UN Human Rights Office didn't actually send someone for the first time to observe this rally. But uh, people in power in Cambodia obviously thought this was a threat, and they ordered an attack. Four grenades were thrown at this rally. 19 people died. More than 150 people were injured. I got there about 15 minutes after it happened. 
to see a woman, uh, a, a girl really, um, who was there trying to make some money at the rally, uh, selling some food, uh, trying to stand up with no legs. Uh, I saw the military come in and start rummaging through people's uh, clothes who were killed, but then block people who were trying to take people to hospital. The police were there that day, as they were at all rallies, except they were around the corner, having been told to stand down in advance. The military, for the first time, in the form of Hun Sen's bodyguard unit, was there for the first time ever at a rally. Their job was to provide an escape route for the people who threw the grenades, which they then did. The four people who threw grenades ran through their lines. When people tried to chase after them, they pointed their AK-47s at them and told them that if they tried to chase them, they would be shot. The FBI came because an American citizen was injured, Ron Abney. He was evacuated to Singapore. And this was considered an act of terrorism. And in fact, if you go to the State Department website, you will find it on their list of terrorist acts from 1997 between something that happened in Colombia and something that happened somewhere else I've forgotten now. The FBI concluded that Hun Sen's bodyguard unit was involved in the killing. And the investigator concluded that nobody other than Hun Sen could have ordered this. He interviewed the chain of command all the way up. And all the way up, they said, well, I couldn't make such a decision. It was made by someone above me. And the deputy leader of Hun Sen's bodyguard unit said that I couldn't make this decision. It was made above me. There was only one person above him, because he reported directly to Hun Sen. And I'll close. Uh, I actually wanted to bring you up further, but I, I can go on for hours about <laughs> punity in Cambodia. I'll close, I'll, I'll close here for now. Why does, Cam why does impunity persist in Cambodia? Well, it persists in part, in large part, because people in power can get away with it. Um, I don't know if, how many of you work on domestic violence, but in, in the world of domestic violence, why do husbands hit their wives? Because they can. And that's what happens in Cambodia. Why can generals, why can people in the police, why can people in the military do these things? Because they can. Now, why can they? There are certainly a lot of courageous Cambodians who try to stop this. Many of them pay a very heavy price. Uh, but another reason they can is because of indifference from people who are influential in Cambodia. And we have never had a joined up diplomatic group. We've never had a group of ambassadors and a group of donors who cared enough about this to take the Cambodian government on and to insist that this stop. We've had individual uh, ambassadors and diplomats who've tried, but we've, we've never had for instance, the $500 million or so that's uh, provided in aid every year put on the table as part of this discussion. In the case of the March 30, uh, 1997 grenade attack, the FBI investigation came to a grinding halt in late May, about two months after the attack. Why? The American ambassador ordered the FBI out of the country. Why? Because his position was becoming uncomfortable, because the FBI was getting too close, and Hun Sen knew it. He was worried about access. He was worried about whether or not the United States was going to have good relations with the host government. And he was very worried that the investigation would formally name Hun Sen. Well, somehow the FBI report leaked in the Washington Post in June 1997 published the fact that the FBI had concluded that Hun Sen was responsible. Put it on the front page. But then two weeks later, Hun Sen staged a coup, changed the subject. 
And I think the coup was inspired in his timing and to some extent because Hun Sen needed to change the subject. I think the coup was going to happen anyway. Uh, in that coup, Hun Sen uh, and my colleagues and I documented this, uh, and it's, it's on the UN website, the summary executions of more than 100 people. And in closing, uh, I will tell you that not one of those cases has ever been solved. We, may, we know in many of those cases exactly who did it. I, d I personally dug up some of the bodies um, who were buried in shallow graves in July 1997. As did, as did my colleagues. We know who did what. Uh, one of the units involved was called the Parachute 911 unit. They have since uh, been given awards by the United States government. They've been given training. Um, and they are considered a very important part of the United States counter-terror efforts in, the, in the, what used to be called Global War on Terror. Um, and until people who have influence in Cambodia whether it's because of their diplomatic status or their status as donors, uh, or because they're influential Cambodians, uh, actually uh, address this, 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 this problem will continue. On that very uplifting note, I'll pause. Thank I don't think I'm going to be more uplifting than Brad, unfortunately, but perhaps not as gruesome. Um, I'm going to make a few uh, points about the UN human rights in Cambodia, um, impunity, um, and the international community, and then with a brief comment on the Khmer Rouge trials. Um, I hope that, I, I assume that there will be questions about the trials afterwards and that we will be able to answer them then. Despite the, the, the situation Brad has described, um, and after the grenade attack, the coup, the killings that occurred during the 1998 elections, those killings didn't stop. They continued and, 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 and plagued the elections uh, in 2003 as well. Um, but despite the situation, and despite the fact that the hundreds of cases that the, the office and others dealt with that remain unresolved. The word impunity disappeared from the resolution of the Human Rights Council that uh, it adopted in September of this year. Now this was the first time um, in a long time uh, uh, that, the, the, that impunity went missing. Uh, it had been mentioned as a term in previous resolutions. And uh, this was, of course, a significant omission. And I think it says more about the failures of the international community and the Human Rights Council than it reflects the actual reality on the ground. Now, I want to go back to 1993 when, when the UN Commission on Human Rights, which was the predecessor to the Human Rights Council, established what was one of the strongest mandates that has ever been given to a UN human rights operation. And it did so partly in recognition of Cambodia's tragic past and the need to protect <coughs> human rights and to prevent a return of the practices of the past. So it established, uh, it asked the Secretary General of the UN to appoint a, an independent expert to serve as his special representative 
for human rights in Cambodia and to establish an in-country human rights office. And the idea was that the independent expert would visit the country regularly and the office would be a continuing presence. Now the joint task given to them was to assist the government um, and the people of Cambodia to establish institutions, laws, policies and practices to uphold and uh, protect human rights and also to monitor the situation and to report annually uh, to the Commission on Human Rights and to the General Assembly of the UN and, until 2003 when the Assembly dropped consideration of the situation in Cambodia, again not because of the actual reality on the ground, but because of a slow weakening of the resolutions that were adopted in Cambodia, about on Cambodia. Now, uh, this mandate and its combination of assistance and accountability is, uh, 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 was very necessary for Cambodia, and I think it remains necessary for Cambodia, as well as for other post-conflict, fragile situations. But the problem was, was that there was a failure of many governments, even though they had actually agreed to it as member states of the UN, as members of the Commission on Human Rights, to actually support it <coughs> in practice. And so the, the, the UN human rights mission, comprised of the representative and the office, was left without the firm support that it needed to, if it was going to discharge the mandate effectively, and if it was going to deal with the dire situation that it inherited, which Brad described, when the UNTAC, the UN Transitional Authority in Cambodia, left. I, I think that many governments uh, saw the mandate um, as setting precedents that they didn't want set. Uh, they regarded it as uh, a mandate that could rebound on them. And to be frank, most governments don't want to see the emergence of effective international means of, uh, of supervision and oversight in the human rights field. So the uh, uh, Hun Sen, um, who was the uh, first the second prime minister and then co-prime minister, no, first, second prime minister and then sole prime minister. Um, <coughs> uh, but the power in, in Cambodia alternated between reluctant cooperation with the human rights mission and outright hostility. And the four special representatives who were appointed by the secretary general, who were all people of considerable weight and, and, and experience uh, who tried very, very hard uh, to discharge their mandate, all inevi inevitably and in, in eventually uh, met uh, Hun Sen's uh, wrath. He, he personalized the issues rather than deal with the problems that they raised. And, uh, and, and, and eventually all of them came under his vindictive attack. Uh, the last special representative, Yash Gai, who some of you may know and who was a, a, a widely respected lawyer and constitutional expert uh, from Kenya, 
fared the worst. Um, Hun Sen spoke of him with, with, with utter contempt, uh, refused to meet with him at all, and, uh, and asked for the mandate of the special representative to be, to be ended. Now, uh, after three years of service, Yashgai eventually resigned in, 19, in, in, in September 2008 uh, in, in great frustration. Um, and uh, he, in leaving, he regretted um, the lack of support that he and his mandate had received from the international community. He shared his concerns uh, with the Human Rights Council about the situation in Cambodia. He said that his, his and his predecessors' recommendations had not been implemented, uh, that uh, the judiciary continued to be controlled by the executive, uh, that impunity and threats against those who criticized the status quo continued, and that this situation couldn't be explained away by poverty or massive violations of human rights that, that occurred under the Khmer Rouge regime of democratic Kampuche. And, and for those of you who don't know, that regime um, lasted from April the 27th, 2000, uh, uh, sorry, 17th, sorry. Uh, this is written in my mind. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, 1975 to the 6th of January uh, uh, 1979. That is three years, eight months, and 20 days. Most Cambodians know that. It's often repeated. When he, he emphasized the responsibility of the international community to support the people of Cambodia in their quest for justice and accountability. The Human Rights Council um, merely took note of his report. Uh, before that, it had welcomed the reports of the special representative. And it ended the post of the, of the special representative as part of its reform agenda. It did, however, keep Cambodia under consideration, which came as a relief to many people. It appointed its own special rapporteur, and it asked the rapporteur to engage in a, quote, constructive manner with the government for the further improvement of human rights in Cambodia. Now, the UN Human Rights Office has not escaped criticism either, um, and Hun Sen has threatened its closure more than once. First, uh, in 1995, I think, uh, when Brad was there, also when I was there, and most recently last month, uh, during Ban Ki-moon's visit to Cambodia, um, when Hun Sen <coughs> again asked for the office uh, to be closed. Um, this, I might point out, is the first, uh, was the first visit of a UN Secretary General to Cambodia since uh, Boutros Ghali visited in 1992. Um, the special representatives um, nonetheless made uh, <coughs> continuing and, 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 and uh, uh, continuing and valiant efforts, I would say, to overcome impunity in Cambodia and to try to prevent it from becoming entrenched. The first uh, was Michael Kirby. He was a judge of the Supreme Court of Australia. He tried and 
his successor, Thomas Hammerberg, who was then uh, ambassador of Sweden for human rights also. Um, in October 2005, the third special representative, Peter Leuprecht, um, from uh, uh, mounting frustration uh, about the failure of, uh, of, of the government to respond and the lack of progress, um, issued a report entitled Continuing Patterns of Impunity uh, in Cambodia, which traced forms of impunity that, had, um, that he and his predecessors and other UN experts had recorded in public reports uh, since, uh, since the early 1990s. His aim was to generate public discussion about impunity. Um, and although I'm concentrating on, 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 on issues of murder and violent attacks on, on, on people who criticize Phnom Penh, of course, in, uh, there are other forms of impunity which, which Simon will be addressing uh, concerning uh, uh, land and natural resources and so on. Um, so his, his wish was to generate public discussion and some response from Cambodia's leadership, as well as uh, more support from the international community to, 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 to deal with this, this problem of impunity. Unfortunately, uh, uh, it was not possible um, to discuss the report in Cambodia um, because of the sensitivity of the issues that it raised, and the report was largely ignored. Um, <coughs> of particular concern were, the, were hundreds, literally hundreds, of murders and violent attacks on, on people who criticized Hun journalists, pol politically active people, labor leaders, and so on. Um, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned, these, these killings and murders um, continued during the election period of 2003 which continued until mid-2004, when a new government was, was eventually formed. Um, those killings uh, included several contract killings, um, which were typically carried out by helmeted men, again, on motorbikes, um, in broad daylight, in Phnom Penh. Um, one of the victims was a very popular and independent trade union leader named Chair Vichair, uh, who, who had been an outspoken critic uh, of, of, of government policies. Uh, he was shot dead uh, on the morning of the 22nd of January 2004 while he was reading his uh, newspaper, as he did every morning, um, in a newspaper kiosk where the person who, who, who owned the kiosk was, was in fact a, a, a friend. Um, uh, two men were uh, arrested within days of his murder who were clearly innocent. Um, there, was very little, there was no evidence, convincing evidence produced um, uh, to, 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 to support their, their arrest. But nonetheless, they were uh, tried and sentenced to 20 years in prison after a trial that, that uh, blatantly fell short of any fair standards. 
Um, in contrast to most other cases, the, the murder of Cherbuchev and the arrest of these two uh, men who were believed to be innocent um, attracted international attention, um, including of the trade union movement um, and of the ILO. And thanks to the dogged campaigning of, of, of organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, eventually these two men were released uh, a year ago after spending five years in prison. Um, uh, but I think they're still on, they're on bail pending further investigation of the case. The case, of course, the murder uh, has not been resolved. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, for those of you who are interested, I'd recommend a film uh, which came out last year, uh, made by uh, somebody called Bradley Cox, uh, called uh, Who Killed Chair for Chair? Uh, this film is a detailed exploration uh, of this case. Now, the, the film has unfortunately been banned in Cambodia, and efforts, in fact, yesterday, of trade union uh, leaders um, and members of trade unions to watch this film in Cambodia's new Freedom Park um, failed. The police turned up, and they, 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 their attempts to show it um, were, were thwarted. Uh, the governor of Phnom Penh said it was uh, not possible, they didn't have permission. Um, so I mentioned this case in detail because, it, because I think it, 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 is, uh, it, it, it shows, uh, it, it illustrates the continuing pattern that we've been trying to deal with and failed to deal with. Meanwhile, as, as Brad said, uh, all this is, is happening under the eyes of, 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 of um, a very large presence of international, of, of, of outside governments, um, the diplomatic community and the development aid community in Cambodia. They form a very large presence in the country and they provide um, half of the, the national budget. But, but they've turned a blind eye, quite frankly, to, 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 to these problems. And they're in a state of, of, of denial, uh, to quote Stan Cohen. They don't want to see. Um, and they may uh, use <coughs> terms like good governance and participation and accountability, but these terms are actually quite vague. And they're open to very broad interpretation. Um. And Cambodia's leaders have become masters of them. Meanwhile, the international treaties that, that do tie down the meaning of these terms and, and impose legally binding obligations, both on Cambodia and on uh, most other governments that have ratified them, are, are largely ignored. Um, I'll just say a, brief, a few brief words that, that the situation for human rights organizations in Cambodia is, is very difficult. They also have been uh, criticized um, and intimidated by Hun Sen. Um, who accuses them of belonging to the political opposition and, uh, and of uh, inciting people to, to unrest. Rather than defending their work and, and, and taking up the problems that they, they raise, donors have typically uh, urged them to engage in constructive dialogue with the government. And although non-governmental organizations like Human Rights Watch and Global Witness have repeatedly urged uh, donors to be more exacting in the development aid funds they provide. 
in this June, donors pledged a, 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 a record uh, one billion and more US dollars uh, in development aid for the coming year with very few questions asked. Um, Cambodia is low on today's foreign policy agenda and it's held up often as a story of success. Um, it's hospitable to foreign investors, it's cooperative on counter-terrorism measures, it compares well with Burma and it hasn't returned to war. For most foreigners who visit Cambodia, it seems a reasonably stable country. And Hun Sen is now one of the longest serving prime ministers. He steadily consolidated his power since the, losing the elections in 1993 and has used, in my view, international assistance to gain legitimacy at home and abroad. Most people associate Cambodia with Pol Pot and the killing fields. And, uh, and uh, 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 as Cambodians grapple with the harsh realities today, the, the, the Khmer Rouge trials attract the attention of the media and, uh, and, and, and the world's publics. Um, I guess the, the, the question that we're all asking is, 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 will the trials help to break the pattern of impunity um, that has characterized Cambodia's recent history? Or will they exonerate, will they allow Cambodia's leaders to claim a commitment to justice and the rule of law while exonerating them from subsequent crimes um, and allowing them to continue business as usual. Um, Hun Sen cooperates with the trials as long as they remain within the limits that he sets and he uses the Khmer Rouge as the yardstick to measure progress in Cambodia and of course thereby making failure impossible. He tolerates the UN human rights presence as long as it confines itself to assistance to overcome the problems which he and the government attribute to the legacy of the Khmer Rouge regime. And few governments now care to ask too many questions. So whatever the outcome of the trial, Cambodia today, I, I feel, needs to be getting much more attention from the public and from the rest of the world. The Cambodian people really do deserve better. Um, and 30 years after the appalling transgressions of the Khmer Rouge regime, much of the country still lives in fear. Thank you. Does that work okay? Can you hear? Right. right. Um, oh, sorry. Um, just thinking of uh, a comment Brad made earlier. Can you hear that? Is that better? Um, talking about people um, in very difficult situations and um, uh, you know, facing an un uncertain future and coming from a very poor background. This this guy here was about 15 or 16, as a guess, and he took us as his. Bo he was our bodyguard to go on a little trip up the waterways in Kokong. Anyone who's been to Kokong would sort of 
have a vague sense of what that's like, but it's a mixture of mangroves, and I guess today, since I've been there, they are significantly destroyed from shrimp farming and what have you, and sand dredging, which I'll come back to a bit later. Um, but at this stage, he, he, he came with us to go and look at log piles, and in our naivety, it was our first trip, we didn't quite realise just where this was, and we hadn't got the GPS working, and uh, it turned out we later found out it was kind of behind the Khmer Rouge <laughs> zone, which wasn't a very clever place to be. So, you know, this, this is the start point uh, of our work in Cambodia, where I first met uh, Brad, I guess, around 1995, and we, we started working on this issue of, uh, of, of logs coming across the Thai border and how they played a role in financing the Khmer Rouge's continued war effort against the government. And I met uh, Margot a bit, a bit later on. But, um, so I want to just kind of rush through a, a kind of story, if you like, from our perspective of some of the different areas we've focused on in this time. And I think it kind of illustrates the, another backbone, if you like, another support mechanism for impunity, and that's the, the cash flow, if you like, the, the, um, the lubricant that in, uh, empowers impunity. If you've got money, you can buy things. You can, you can keep your pile of power in, in, on your side and do more or less what you want, as, as you've been hearing. So I want to talk about impunity uh, a little bit from that perspective. And also, of course, uh, I put a strong term up there, but I think actually complicity of donors. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to caveat that up front, I think, by saying that we've met lots of quite dramatic donor officials, diplomats who've, who've played a, a really good role, but they've been kind of isolated. And as Brad was saying earlier, I think, Margaret, you're basically saying as well, they never worked in concert. So you tend to have a, a mixture of diplomats, some frankly utterly useless in the context of changing things, alongside others who were dynamic. And the dynamic ones would push the boat out and we'd get a, a bit of progress. And then the, shall, shall I say, the somewhat more pedestrian ones would let the side down and progress would fall back. So it's kind of been a process of up and down throughout this period. Anyway, just very quickly at the beginning. So the first thing we did was to look at the, the Thai border all the way around from the, the southern sort of Thai province of Trat all the way around, all the way to the, to the Lao border, looking for where logs were crossing because you could see photographs in the Thai press essentially showing logs coming across next to Thai uh, government officials, Thai military officials. Uh, at a time when the Thai official policy was we have nothing to do with the Khmer Rouge at all. We, we're post the Paris Peace Accords. We are not facilitating them. And, and this is kind of what we found. This is in Trat province, the border. I apologize if the, fo if the photograph is not such great quality, but kind of up here at the the top of the tree line was, was the border. There's a very thin bit of uh, Thailand that comes down next to Cambodia, and you basically go up there, and there was a, a rough road, that, and, and the logs would come across. More or less, that waterway system would be down the coast and on the other side. And you'd have, um, in some cases, uh, there was one particular company, the biggest one we found, had 100 trucks a day during the dry season going across, backwards and forwards. And it depended on you know, the season, of course. By the time the rainy season came along, we were down to, I don't know, a truck passing every uh, two days almost because the conditions would get so bad. But at the height of income generating, after we travelled the whole way around the border and documented where the companies were and, and conducted interviews with the bosses of the companies, we worked out the Khmer Rouge were making <coughs> somewhere around $20 million a month. Um, the, these are checkpoint passes issued in this one, Brad you probably know more about this than I do, but that one you can see the figure 909 at the bottom which was uh, issued by 
uh, a timber uh, issuing committee, I think the guy told us, from Battalion 909, which was a Khmerage division. And basically the, 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 the colours of the background would change every year. The following year after this, they were pink. And you just have your photograph. And uh, uh, I remember we went to one company, and, and this guy just kind of showed us this thing. And uh, we were busy spinning some story about how nice it would be to show our, our colleagues and the people we were going to sell the timber we were going to buy, which was, was our cover. Uh, you know, how, how was it that you know you got stuff from these very dangerous Khmer Rouge? And uh, he said, "Oh, this is this is how we go across." And and we said, "Oh, wow! Could we have a copy for that to show our our customers?" And he said, "Oh, no, you can have it." And he probably just gave them. And he he had another stack of about fifty in a grey filing cupboard and uh, cabinet. And it's a kind of surreal situation where you're sitting in a kind of bamboo and wooden hut on the middle of nowhere next to logs and lots of people with guns around, and people just hand these things out. So it's, <laughs> it was kind of strange. And, about three weeks after we got this, the top one, I think, was being waved around in the House of Representatives, which caused a bit of a, a, a stink on, on the US side. Um, just, uh, I'll, I'll conclude with my comment about the Khmer Rouge. Suffice to say that by our second investigation, we had uh, kind of identified all the key players, and we had exposed them in, in, in the press. We, we quite naively weren't really sure what to do, so we had a press conference, and uh, nobody had ever heard of us, and uh, so we did this press conference expecting a paragraph on page 56 in the Bangkok press of some description, hopefully, and it went front page. And I think I talked to you at that point where, uh, and others who talked about activists in Thailand being arrested, and so there we were going to the airport, and we, we pick up the Bangkok Post, and it goes, Chuan, who was the then Prime Minister, denies Global Witness Report at which point we thought we were going to be arrested. And we went onto the airport, got on the plane, went to Phnom Penh, nothing happened, thank goodness. And there then ensued an argument, basically, between us and the Thai government, who said, oh, no, 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 we're not doing it. And we said, well, oh, yes, you are. Here's the, here's the, uh, here's the documentation. Uh, and one of the quotes, I just, I think I should, I, I'd like to tell you this just because it, it illustrates sometimes the farce of these kind of things. The head of the Thai military at the time was a guy called General Wimol, and he said, um, logs are not toothpicks. We can't hide them in a suitcase. And this was put to us in Phnom Penh by a journalist. And what do you have to say to that? And we said, well, he's absolutely right. And, you know, if he can't see them, uh, how come we can? You know, he's, he's either being lied to or he's part of the problem. So they printed that next day, front page. And the thing went backwards and forwards. And on the fourth day, they closed the border. Um, but that wasn't the end of the story. They... And, and, and it, wasn't, it was our, also the beginning of our realisation that the Khmer Rouge, which is what we were setting out to do something about, specifically their income streams, by trying to get the border closed to cut them off, were only really half the problem, or probably less than half the problem, the other half being the two prime ministers. Uh, and, and then a few months later, this is now into uh, about 1996, uh, some friends we had made in a certain ministry, which will remain nameless, uh, handed us these. And these later became known as the Million Meter Deal because they were a secret deal basically signed by the two prime ministers and brokered by uh, a, a woman called Chung Se Pye uh, with some of the uh, officials of uh, the companies based in Bangkok, some of whom were connected um, to the soon-to-be Thai prime minister. And these basically illustrated, it became known as the Million Meter Deal because they were roughly for an approximate million cubic meters of timber to go across the border and, and all these named companies. Uh, and this, this was the beginning of the donors starting to have an interest in, in this process. Up until now, it's an environmental problem. It's, it's nothing to do with us. We don't, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, and 
this document came out, we, we published it of course, and the IMF walked out the door. And the reason they walked out the door is because suddenly an issue that everyone had thought of as a kind of environmental problem, but we were trying to say it's actually a, a war problem, it's a, an infringement to development, it's a corruption problem. Suddenly here we had a piece of paper that showed the evidence that there was a corruption problem because it was worth, I'm trying to remember the figures now, some massive amount of money, some several hundred million dollars, I think, ultimately, and it didn't feature in the budget. And that was the, the beginning of the donors taking note because the IMF walked and closed its office, albeit temporarily, and it was the first time the donors really kind of had to wake up and, and take notice. So we then enter a, a period where our, our work was about keeping the border closed while all these various people were busy trying to open it again. Uh, and at the same time, there were increasing numbers of so-called legal concessionaires within the country. And they were being given contracts of dubious quality uh, and in opaque conditions. You, you wouldn't know about these until people leaked uh, copies of things. Um, uh, in all sorts of areas uh, of the country. I think in the end there were some 32 concessionaires, um, uh, I'll come to this in a second, um, who, uh, of which there were two that I would put, I mean this is in a kind of retrospect situation having looked at their operations on, in the field, but there were two who I would have given credit to being, shall we say, companies that had some kind of skill set in forestry. Uh, and one was a company called Samling, some of you may have come across, uh, and another was a company called GAT. And all the rest basically constituted someone and their uncle, someone else of some official, uh, somebody who knew military general so-and-so, etc., etc., and so on. They all had names. They were connected in different ways. Some of them had different nationality connections. But on a skill set basis and an experience basis, they had none at all. And so the way they operated was basically to hire the local military unit who do stuff like this. This, incidentally, is in the small wildlife sanctuary, so uh, it, you might think it's, okay, it's an example of a tree cut and you'd see that in a concession, but this isn't the concession, this is the wildlife sanctuary, they weren't supposed to be in there, and this was committed, this was done by GATT, uh, one of the two that sort of supposedly knew how to, how to do it properly. Um, Samling, some of you may know about for uh, extreme human rights abuses in Sarawak, which is where it comes from, and as far as we can tell, pretty much the only place Sarawak behaves itself is in New Zealand, where it hasn't been able to get away with it. Um, so a lot of these companies, this is just a sort of background on logging companies, they, they kind of operate on a predatory basis, picking off jurisdictions where there's very low governance, low oversight, lack of law enforcement, and so on. And Cambodia was a very typical example of that. Um, here's another example. Um, this one is in a, a rubber plantation. You can see it's a, a kind of um, a resin tapper's tree, uh, a, a nice local product that doesn't involve killing the forest. <coughs> and they just cut it down anyway. Um, all of these kinds of things go on with major implications for people on the ground who live there. If they get in the way, they get bulldozed out of the way. If they, if they resist, they get threatened, uh, and in some cases with dire circumstances, as we've seen. Brad mentioned people being shot, and when we first came to Phnom Penh, it really wasn't possible as a journalist, I think, to, I think you'd agree with that, really to talk about logging and, you know, the, the money flows from logging and what logging was really about, it, it had a really fatal consequence for doing so. And, and gradually over time, because we were just like kind of becoming more and more public enemy, number one, we, we also had the, we also kind of had a, I suppose, an impunity of our own in the sense that, you know, as privileged people from outside, we could come in, do an investigation, we could obtain the evidence, we could publish it, and we could leave without facing the consequences. So I, I would stress that. It, it's more a kind of a way of operating. 
but it enabled us to say things that other people couldn't, and it also gradually opened up a space. So we had a kind of opening of space, and the more people starting to talk about this stuff, but then again, we've, as, as time progressed, we ended up with more of a, a kind of pushback. Um, here's the GATT company. I, I put this one on because it's another interesting example of impunity, because um, by around um, the sort of late 90s and into the 2000s, we start to see the increasing work of what we've described as a sort of ultimate logging syndicate, which consisted of uh, relatives of Hun Sen, um, uh, the, uh, the uncle, hang on, let me just get this right, the father-in-law of the director of the forestry department and the Ne- was it the nephew? I forget now. The uh, I think anyway, it doesn't really matter. Of, of the um, uh, minister of agriculture and of various other characters, all working together essentially and creating the conditions for companies to carry on operating. So we had uh, also during this time a kind of erosion of some of the operations of the logging companies, but mostly because they just didn't function properly. And we ended up in a, in a situation where there were a few select companies that got to do more or less what they wanted without anyone doing anything about it. And and then we had other rogue operations of military units and so on and so forth. And then these companies operating also with uh, military units and so on. In this time frame, the World Bank had a very bright idea. This is a good example, I think, of donors not quite uh, operating in a sensible way. Their vision was, oh, well, the forestry estate in Cambodia is worth a lot. Uh, A figure they pushed out in the beginning was $100 million a year. Uh, let's make them operate properly. And they completely missed the point, that my previous point, that out of the 32 concessionaires, 30 couldn't do it if you paid them to do it. And they began this kind of process of, of trying to empower them and, and, and make the, uh, you know, the, the functionality of the companies better. During that same time per- period, the logging mafia basically took over this company. This is the GAT company. And one of the, one of the directors fled uh, and another one was essentially kidnapped and put in house arrest in this house. And he was held there to, to our knowledge for at least two years, possibly a bit longer. And we don't actually know what happened to him after that. We made various inquiries to find out that we had for a while a live, real-time sense that he was still there. And he was kind of basically held to ransom, I think. Uh, I don't know what, what has happened in, uh, ultimately with him. Also during this period, I'm, I'm sort of going backwards and forwards a little bit in time, but um, in uh, 1997, logging basically financed the coup d'etat. It provided the main log, uh, revenue for both sides. It was the only thing that the two prime ministers essentially cooperated on. Uh, after the election, it funded... Um, yeah. It, after the election, it funded uh, Hun Sen's election victory. And, and we end up with a sort of... Uh, at the same time increasing concern from donors and the beginning of a possibility of uh, maybe some reform happening. This is one of the more inspirational moments. And eventually by 1999, the donors decided in their wisdom that there should be an independent monitor of forestry reform. And somehow, I forget how exactly, because we didn't really want to do this, we ended up as the monitor, which was kind of strange because we'd been naming and shaming people for years. So in one sense, it was inappropriate, I suppose. And you know, there was obviously <coughs> going to be tension on the other side, we were probably the only people who really knew who the companies were and where they were and what they were doing and knew how to investigate them. So we, we began this kind of official role where we had essentially license to go and visit the concessionaires and see what was going on. And that went very well in some cases and very badly in others, depending on the company concerned. 
uh, but gradually over time, as we reported more about the you know operations of Company X in somebody else's concession and you know beatings here and this there and, and so on and so forth, the pressure built, and we started to find ourselves with staff being threatened, with our office director being beaten up. Um, there were I, I won't sort of bore you with the details, and uh, suffice it to say, by 2003, when Hunsen basically closed down the operation, uh, we stayed on. Uh, still with an office in Phnom Penh through to 2005, but by that later stage, the threats were getting really quite serious, and we ended up having to find asylum for one of our staff, and one of the others had to basically meld off into the distance and effectively disappear for a while. And, and you can see, you know, even with the official support, um, it becomes very difficult to operate in a place like this because when push comes to shove, nothing gives. There is there's no backup, and it's actually one of you know, speaking personally, and this is more of a sort of personal reflection rather than, you know, so much about Cambodia itself, but this is a point when the donors really needed to back up a reform process. You know, here was their monitor doing this work under serious threat, and when it got difficult, they all ducked, and we were basically left dangling. So we closed the office. Uh, and, you know, gradually over time, we've started to look into other areas. Um, I'll move off logging because... Logging really bankrolled all of this period up until a few years ago where there started to be a more opening up, I think, of, of, of other sort of minerals and sand and other commodities. Uh, so here's a, here, here's a map of mining concessions. Uh, some of these will be operational, some of them not, but nevertheless there's prospecting going on. Uh, and, and these are all characterized by, uh, well, you can see some of them are put in areas, um, uh, national parks and so on. Uh, others, uh, you have to think about pre-prior and informed consent, almost certainly not given. There's no details about the contract. There's no transparency around the participants. There's no transparency around revenue streams. Oil is another issue that there's been sort of potential oil discoveries in various places. And we have here, here's uh, the Deputy Prime Minister Sohan, who's uh, having a nice handshake with Hun Sen. He's in charge of the oil ministry. We don't know who's paid what. We, we have an idea which companies have paid, but we have no idea how much money there is and where it's gone. And in a world where, you know, dealing with oil revenues, we're starting to move into a world where the global norm is you will disclose the, the revenues you pay. There's absolutely no information there at all. And it's profoundly worrying because if oil does start flowing, we will see a massive escalation of income. And we will see the, possibly the last best chance of serious revenue streams to help Cambodia's development disappearing in, in, in various different directions. So they're having a nice, a nice little chat to work out what to do, I guess. Um, so so just, just moving on, often we've had sort of quite a, as you can imagine, a, a, a bit of a contretemps with, with the government. We'll say something, we'll, we'll identify somebody doing various things. And this is quite an interesting example of the kind of reaction. It's not a terribly good picture, I'm afraid. It's the best one we've got. But uh, after we published something earlier this year, uh, the embassy here in, in London produced this. Uh, and you can see the kind of quality of debate. It, it came at a time when they basically challenged us to a debate. And we said, well, that's very interesting. We'll have a debate. At which point they refused to have a debate and used various other sort of uh, pretty awful terms to describe us. And that was the reason why they wouldn't do it. And they, they decided to define our campaign director, Gavin Heyman, as a sea lion. I, I can't explain <laughs> why he became a sea lion, but that's basically how they portrayed him. So I, I just wanted to say that because, you know, what we'd really like is to have a discussion in a mature way with people about what the problem is. You know, they're, they're, it's fairly obvious what the problems are, but there are also some ways where, you know, things could be cleaned up, and this is kind of the level of the debate. So 
Uh, I, I want to introduce also this. We've discovered a species, in fact, a couple of species in Cambodia. The first one's uh, Elitus uh, kleptocraticus, um, and they have a sort of propensity to steal things in large quantities and stash their money in, as you can see here, places like Zurich, London, Geneva, probably, yeah, places like Singapore, Beijing, possibly as well. And then there's the other side of the coin, is that the, the real problem with this other species is called Donorus pedestriensis, that has a spine problem. Uh, and I'm being very mean and cheeky, but it kind of characterizes the whole process. You know, there, there, there is a, an inability to stop doing this for some reason. I think it's related also to, of course, once you get in your impunity pile on the top of it, you also need to keep the cash flow going, so you kind of find yourself a bit trapped. So I think what we really need to do is, is help, possibly with a, a gene splice or something like that, Donorus pedestriensis, to kind of help them out of their quandary a little bit and create governance reforms and see whether we can't... Um, I'll let, actually, I'll bring it back to that while you're thinking about this. There's one thing I just wanted to kind of end with, um, which, which is this. A, a bright light of for the future, hopefully. We'll, we'll see. In, in 2002, I, I launched a campaign with a number of other people called the Publish What You Pay campaign, which was um, focused on... Um, it was a call, an international call, if you like, for listing authorities in key listing locations where oil, gas and mining companies are located to be required to disclose the revenues they pay in each country as a condition of listing. Uh, at the time when we started, we were kind of laughed at. Um, but in July, I think it was this year, the Senate, um, mm -hmm. following on from the House in the United States, passed what's called the F um, Section 1504 of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. I have to read that because I'll forget the name and mess it up. But essentially, that is the first domicile where natural resource companies, oil, gas and mining companies, essentially uh, will be required post the SEC coming to a conclusion about how it's going to do this, which is around April next year, they will be required to disclose. And this raises things in a quite interesting, to a quite interesting dimension because we have Chevron, that's a prospective oil company operating there, we have Total, both of whom will have to disclose. And so there are another, other, a few other governance mechanisms out there, for example, the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, which people have made some effort to get the government to join, where there would be a, a possibility of uh, civil society, well, that's the, the central tenet of VITI, where civil society is able to operate with the data produced by companies disclosing, and they would hold government accountable for the use of those revenue streams. But frankly, I'm not holding my breath for Cambodia to join. And so the basic message I have here is this. Once April comes, in some way, shape, or form, oil companies that, that, that pump oil and pay money will have to disclose the payments. And this is just the beginning. London will follow suit, and so will other key jurisdictions. And what we'll hopefully find is all but a minority of the companies that operate there will basically be required to disclose, and the rest, if they don't, will be pursued relentlessly by the Publish What You Pay Coalition, which is now some 650 NGOs around the world. And essentially, they will become pi uh, you know, pariah companies that are part of the problem. And so I think, just as a, a shot across the bow to the, to the Cambodian elitist kleptocraticus, they need to understand that the game is soon going to be up around revenue streams. We are going to see a global norm develop slowly. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but it is coming. And then I think we might find ourselves able to hold these revenue streams and hold them accountable for what they do with them. And hopefully that will kind of be a refocus of, of you know, what they're able to get away with. If they, if they don't have the money, they can't do it, it would, would be my hope. So thank you.
Okay, we've had three very interesting accounts of uh, impunity in Cambodia. The first on the ground, uh, arising out of investigations that uh, Brad carried out and actually witnessed. Um, from Margot's point of view, the attempts and efforts by the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the entire human rights machinery attempting to keep the situation under control. Um, and the third level of impunity, which is the use of natural resources uh, in a way that's actually illegal to fuel conflict and that there are people who profiteer out of conflict. So we now open the uh, uh, flow of questions, uh, three at a time. Please just make sure that you state your name and your affiliation for the purposes of recording. We aim to stop at eight o'clock, so we've got about 10 minutes. So let's see if we can take three first questions. At the back, blue shirt, and in the brown sweater at the back. Uh, yes. Hi, um, my name is Alex Morella. I have worked briefly in Cambodia, but just a general point about diplomatic staff. I don't think there's anything in their job description that says they should speak out about human rights and abuse, but I know when Craig Murray did it about Uzbekistan, he seemed to get quite a flag from the foreign office, so they don't really get rewarded for speaking out. Um, which is, unfortunately, people are often very much like sheep rather than there to sort of stand up and be counted. So I don't know what's in, in ambassadors' job descriptions, but it doesn't seem to be part of it. Yes, please. Hello. My name's Patrick. Uh, for you, Brad, two questions, yes or no questions. First one, could you still see that situation where you had two police officers take the bullets out of their body? Could you still see that today? And second one is, do you, well, we all hope, but do you think that the trials and our attempts to remove this, the, the impunity uh, available to these political leaders will foster an environment, a politically stable environment that will create laws, uh, you know, promoting human rights in Cambodia for the future and help them progress and get out of this perennial damning situation that they seem to be in? Thank you. At the back. My name is Bernard Hukwa. I would like to ask uh, the panel if there is any uh, mechanisms to lobby, especially to the uh, United Nations, to make a mechanism uh, which can control or prevent uh, the use of the use of multinationals helping in uh, as nanny states perpetrators. For example, we have seen in the uh, diamond, the use of diamonds as uh, sponsoring uh, perpetrators in, in terms of, uh, in case of Charles Taylor and in case of situation in Southern Africa and Zimbabwe, uh, there's a Kimberley process which has been set up to monitor along, the, along those lines across the world. I don't know if uh, all your organizations can group together, set up a mechanisms to, to do the same in Cambodia and if it is possible. Okay, thanks. Um, shall we start with Margot, Brad and Simon in that order? Um, yes, I, I understand what you're saying, but actually there are many things that can be done uh, without necessarily going out with a megaphone. Um, I had in mind, for example, even uh, meetings with the Prime Minister 
taking the recommendations of the special representatives of the Secretary General for Human Rights in Cambodia and asking the Prime Minister what he was intending to do about them. Now, to my knowledge, that happened on very, very few occasions. It should have been done, of course, it could have um, ideally it could have been done publicly, but not even in private meetings would, would, would that happen. So I'm, I'm not asking for the moon, um, uh, but I do think that, that, uh, that uh, the diplomatic community, and, and, and as Brad and Simon said, there were, there were exceptions to this. There were some extraordinary ambassadors who really did try. But the majority, uh, e uh, even when they could have, didn't. And I think that's what was so frustrat frustrating, really. Especially because there was the mandate, especially because there were resolutions of the, of the United Nations. Um, there was the Secretary General supportive of this. There were the international treaties that, it, that had been ratified. There was a whole framework which doesn't exist, for example, in Uzbekistan. <clears throat> Just to add on that point, uh, Cambodia also is a place now that is not geopolitically sensitive. There aren't a lot of commercial interests for Western uh, countries. So actually it's a place where uh, diplomats can take risks and they're not going to be slapped down at home, um, which is all the more galling um, that they don't actually do the basics. Uh, and uh, I know that U.S. ambassadors are sent out with a letter telling them what their responsibilities are at any given time. What the, what the American policy is and goals are for every country. And Cambodia always says protection of human rights and democratization, for example. So an ambassador who doesn't take those up is actually uh, ignoring his or her instructions. And we think we've seen a series of U.S. ambassadors who've done that. Um, on your question about whether I could see that happening today, yes. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's any question about if someone were ordered to kill somebody um, they would have the uh, temerity to go back and do something like that. Uh, one of the cases that I wanted to mention was a friend of mine named Om Ratsabi, who was a Funsenpec parliamentarian, uh, about the nicest guy that uh, you can meet in politics anywhere, uh, very mild-mannered, refused to take money, drove around in a very old beaten-up uh, Toyota, uh, while all his colleagues in the parliament were uh, going from Toyotas to BMWs to Mercedes over the years. Um, lived in rented accommodation. Uh, and in uh, February 2003, was having lunch in a restaurant, walked out, and two guys drove on a motorcycle and shot him in the back, and he bled to death. Uh, after shooting him, they walked away and then forgot their orders and went uh, back to the scene, picked up his mobile phone for reasons that are a little bit hard to understand, and then left. Uh, so that was seven years ago, and uh, I, I, I don't see anything that's changed in the country that would stop people who have the protection to do these kinds of things from feeling like they could do that. Um, your question about the Khmer Rouge trials is a very big one. When I was involved in the early days of, uh, in 1997 trying to to make this happen, working with Thomas Hammerberg, who was the special rep uh, representative at the time. Uh, we got Hun Sen and Prince Ranarid as co-prime ministers to sign a letter in June 1997 asking Kofi Annan to provide a <coughs> tribunal along the lines of Rwanda. 
And we had grandiose hopes that we would have an international tribunal, that it would, be, <coughs> it would learn the lessons from the former Yugoslavia tribunal, which wasn't going very well at the time, and the Rwanda tribunal, uh, that Cambodian judges and prosecutors would be trained, that Cambodian lawyers would be involved, that it would be brought to a neutral uh, environment, which is what the UN group of experts suggested, uh, and that we would set new standards for fair trials and due process, that these cases would be televised in Cambodia, uh, that there would be a major public debate generated, and while we didn't expect Hun Sen to go and arrest the people who carried out his coup, or who through grenades at Sam Renzi in 1997, we thought it might have uh, an impact on various people at various levels in the government and marginalize those people who wanted to continue to behave this way. Uh, the UN was forced into a, an agreement by the United States, Japan, and France primarily to have a tribunal in Cambodia with a majority of Cambodian judges with a co-Cambodian prosecutor. And, uh, and it has allowed Hun Sen to manipulate the process so that it uh, has been drawn out over very many years. They've convicted one person uh, who admitted his guilt publicly in 1999, I think it was. So it's not a major victory to, to convict somebody who's already pled guilty in public. And now they're struggling to have a second set of trials against some of the most notorious uh, people on the face of the earth. And Hun Sen has made it clear that he will not have a third set of trials. What do Cambodians take from this? Well, it's a, it is a mixed bag. I don't want to suggests that there aren't a lot of Cambodians who are taking satisfaction from this process, because I think there are. Uh, there has been great public interest uh, in some of the proceedings. Uh, the, the courtroom has been packed, and it's not easy to get to that courtroom. Uh, but I think that the, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, Cambodians will have seen that it was Hun Sen who decided who would be put on trial and who wouldn't, who would be convicted and who wouldn't. And they will know that very many people who are mass murderers still live in the community and are untouched. And this is true in very many parts of the country. If you do the math, the number of people who died, uh, it's, there, are, there can still be a large number of people who are responsible for the deaths of hundreds or thousands of people uh, still floating around. And Hun Sen has made it impossible for that uh, evidence trail to be followed. And that was actually one of the things we were hoping for the most, that it would be evidence and facts that would lead to criminal prosecutions in Cambodia in the future, that this process would be exemplary in that respect. And that has not been the case. The UN has been prohibited from following hot leads. And there's, you know, if you follow this at all, there's been corruption and all sorts of other problems in the process. Um, and I, I think that what this shows, Hun Sen signed originally in 1997 because he wanted to use a tribunal he was manipulated in the into signing for political reasons at the time. But he wanted to use the tribunal to help defeat the Khmer Rouge. And that's what he saw this as, as a way to defeat them, not to bring justice for Cambodians. And I think that that will be the enduring narrative, unless something radical changes. Um, on on Craig, Craig Murray, uh, regardless <coughs> of um, what you might think of him, uh, I think that was a shameful episode, frankly. I mean, he, he said stuff that needed to be said and he got told to shut up. And I, I think, you know, it's hard for me to see what we could do about that kind of thing other than all of us basically saying, hang on a minute, he, he represents us, not, you know, the, the, the sovereignty resides with, with the people, right? So 
the ambassador represents the sovereignty which is in the interest of the population. So let's not get confused between interests which often end up being corporate interests uh, taking priority over people's interests. So I think when we have situations where someone like Craig Murray raises a big stink and gets told to shut up and later effectively got rid of, it's up to us to make a stink about it. That's about the only thing I can think of on that. Somebody else asked about Kimberley process, I think. Um, before we get too excited about Kimberley process, we've, we're the organisation that, that launched the Blood Diamond issue, looking at the role of diamonds funding the civil war in, in Angola, and later, of course, looking at Sierra Leone as well. And the Kimberley process came out of that um, uh, those those crises. And um, the, the Kimberley process is, is a, a good first stab, if you like, at... Um, addressing the role of conflict minerals, but it is extremely weak in its implementation, and there are really serious issues around the latest mess in Zimbabwe and the lack of, shall we say, political will to implement what really needs to be implemented, which should be really to uh, exclude Zimbabwe pending a clean-up and investigation of what was going on. And there's no political will to enforce it, so I think there are very real questions around where we are at with the Kimberley process. So. Having said that, it's, we'll see where it goes. Um, just really quickly mention, there are a couple of other, um, I think, things that are in the, in the brew. I raised revenue transparency as one issue. There is this international process called the uh, Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, which brings civil society at the table on, in an equal measure, in theory. Now, of course, that can be interpreted in different ways. And as some of our partners have found to their great cost, there is a lack of... Um, shall we say, understanding by some of the participants uh, as to what that really means. And so, for example, last year, Gabon, that was about to become chair of the, of the board, as it were, of EITI, saw it upon itself that it was okay to have its civil society participants thrown in jail, and they effectively disappeared. And the only reason they basically got out was because us lot in the civil society community, the publish what you pay community essentially made a massive stink about it and it became embarrassing and they came out. But the fact that Gabon, about to ascend to the chairmanship of this transparency process, didn't think that that was a bad mistake just gives you some idea about how far we have to go in some places and Cambodia site is one of them. Um, so, you know, there's progress there, it's very slow. The, the bill I mentioned will simply require transparency for those companies listed in those jurisdictions. Now, we're starting with the United States, but if we get London, we'll have about 90-plus percent of the key significant international oil, gas, and mining companies. It's not the whole story, but it's a pretty big wedge. Um, and this, of course, applies to other countries. Uh, you mentioned earlier at the beginning the thing in, in The Hague around pillage, so there's some development along you know, the lines of... You know, companies basically acquiring assets in countries where there's no, you know, jurisdictional control or there's conflict and so on could face themselves find themselves facing pillage charges, essentially a war crime. I think you would probably call that. Uh, and then finally, there is now a piece of legislation in the United States which we would like to see expanded elsewhere, which I would define as denial of shopping territory. Um, and it's come about uh, in the sense that should there be evidence and it's a lower standard of evidence than a criminal conviction evidence, but significant evidence, of course, that person X, say the son or daughter or wife or uncle or whatever of a politically exposed person, either a prime minister or someone else, um, has illicitly benefited from the theft of funds derived from natural resource extraction, they will be denied a visa on entry to the United States. 
and potentially, but it's, we're not there yet, they could also face an asset freeze. And this gets quite interesting because if you want to steal lots of money, I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in some of the countries we're talking about, then you want to spend it in, on Fifth Avenue in the Champs-Élysées and various other nice sexy places. You don't want to spend it in a place where you're sort of king of the pie and it's sort of, you know, I'm thinking of people like um, the president of Equatorial Guinea, for example, <laughs> classic example. His son moved $75 million into the United States. Um, clear case of money laundering. I, I won't go further into that, but there are many examples I could cite. But my basic point really is that should the evidence be there, credible evidence that is, then there is the capacity to deny visa. And we would like to suggest that other countries should follow suit. And I, I think there are probably other mechanisms that we could develop over time that, that are about basically holding accountability to these, these large money streams. Can I just add one point on money? Um, in 2002, a State Department official told me that the State Department's uh, assessment was that Hun Sen was personally worth $500 million and Sokan was worth $250 million. That's interesting. That's eight years ago. Um, so that's, that's in a country at that time had a per capita income of around $300 per year. Sokan will soon overtake with the petroleum. Yeah, I'm sure it's, those are small figures by now. Okay, um, we have exceeded our time by some seven minutes, but you still have an opportunity to raise a question or make a comment of a drink, which is better. Uh, <laughs> and the reception is being held in the uh, um, atrium gallery, just uh, on the left as you leave this room. Um, and also, there is still an exception there, Cambodia Reflections of the Khmer Rouge, uh, which is still on display and you can indulge. I wish to thank our audience very much uh, for being attentive and for being patient and taking us through. And most of all, I would like us to thank our speakers. Thank you very much.